Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur. And Scott, save the fuel. I'm coming for you. <laughs> you said you had a, a lead in line when before we hit record. I wonder what it was there. And uh, it was not worth the wait. No, no, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, might be something I come back on in a minute. Not, not the sharpest of dialogue in this film, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know that it was made with really the express intention of having flowery, memorable dialogue that people would recite for decades on end. No, it's it's not the most quotable film, no. for sure. But let's let's pause on the film and welcome our guest. A man who needs a little introduction, but not a big one, because we've been on his show many a times now. It is Mr. George Aldridge from the Cinema Savvy show on YouTube. Hello, George. Welcome to the show. Finally, welcome to the show. Hello there. It's it's lovely to be on one of these. It's been a long time coming, I feel, in a non-please-let-me-on way. Yeah, like you came on and reviewed The Gray Man with Scott, but you've never been on an episode with me. So uh, that was part of my contract, and clearly Scott ripped up my contract, so I, I don't know. I I was never going to honor any of it. So. <laughs> well, you just got to think, you know, at the time of recording, there's another Anna Diamas straight-to-streaming spy film coming out. So timing is, is of the essence, and uh, yeah. I know this is being pre-recorded, obviously, but I just thought that was very interesting timing for me, especially following on from The Grey Man, also starring Chris Evans. Yeah. Also starring Chris Evans. It's also ironic because the Anna Diarmas film you mentioned is called Ghosted, and the press team behind the film also ghosted us. So. <laughs> I don't even think the embargo's dropped and it comes out in two hours. Oh, is that I true? It's two hours from now, like at the time of recording? I think, well, oh no, ignore, yeah, midnight. It's out at midnight, isn't it, on Apple TV? Oh my. Okay, well. <laughs> okay. No reviews are out there. <laughs> okay, well, make of that what you will, folks. <laughs> yep, that, uh, that says it all. Uh, bless their hearts, but uh, hey ho, moving on. But I think before we get to this week's film, I, I know we spoke about it briefly when we had you on the show, or just myself had you on the show before, George, but maybe going back a little bit. You, know, you talk about movies on Cinema Savvy, but you have a very fond love of James Bond. We were on to do some of your James Bond coverage for a couple of films, License to Kill, GoldenEye. But where did that sort of love of spy movies and, and Bond come from for you? In all honesty, it, it would have been watching Bond at a young age. And I think like a lot of, you know, certainly I'd say my generation, you know, born mid-90s, I mean, there's a lot of Bond generations these days, but you get shown a James Bond film by, you know, your family. And it becomes not an esteemed part of the, the household, but certainly, you know, in British pop culture, I guess we could say. Yeah. When a James Bond film comes out, it is very much like the families go to the cinema. And as do, and, you know, my dad goes to the cinema a fair amount, and my mum doesn't, but if it's Star Wars, she'll go. If it's Bond, she'll go. And it, there's always that buzz leading up to a, a new Bond film. And that was kind of, you know... I had a PS1 game, The World Is Not Enough. We played that a lot growing up. I had fond members. And I think Bond really had a massive influence on Spy Films for me. And maybe not the best kind of influence because when you grow up watching Bond, you, you expect spy films to go a certain way. 
Right. Especially the Brosnan era. And, and then as you get older, you realize, okay, whoa, a spy is a very... I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was one of the first ones where I was like, oh, there's no, you know, <laughs> guns ho There's no this. And I was like, am I old enough to be watching this? Like, do I get this? Uh, and I liked it because I love Gary Oldman. But um, yeah, that was probably one of the first times I realized that spy films just aren't James Bond. Yeah, it's quite the uh, shock to the system, isn't it? You, you think it's all glitz and glam and uh, world tours and and bikinis? Was it broads, bikinis, and bullets? Something like that, wasn't it? Booze, broads, and bullets. Okay, that that sounds about right. Yeah, that sort of thing. But it really isn't. It's a lot of men sitting in rooms taking notes. That's spy work for you, baby. <laughs> That's the glitz and glam. It's uh, observations. And I think it's still enjoyable. It's like Game of Thrones, obviously not spy-esque, but some, as I've got older, some of my favourite shows, some of my favourite films are just people sitting in rooms talking. And maybe that's why I've grown to you know, enjoy listening and watching podcasts and doing videos myself. Just people talking is more exciting. Obviously, when the dialogue's good, that goes a long way in making it fun and, and exciting. But yeah, it's all, it's all part of the system, isn't it? Well, just for people that don't know, what sort of inspired the creation of Cinema Savvy? Oh, okay. So the story to this is is actually quite, um, I don't want to say pathetic, but I was a student at the time. And like a lot of people, you know, I would have been 2015. I just, I was 18, almost 19. I was at university studying to my degree and I was paying for a lovely Adobe package every month. And it got to summer and I thought I really should get some money's use out of this. And I, I didn't ever, someone that studied film and, and, and like film production, I didn't actually enjoy doing the film production side of things so much with the camera myself. So I watched so much YouTube. Like, I'd love one day to have my own podcast and do a channel. Uh, and I thought in that mm-hmm. summer, opportunity presented itself. And, and that's how the channel was born with Avengers Age of Ultron, um, which was um, a, an experience contextually. And I guess now again, but um, I think it was just something I always enjoy talking film. Uh, and also with me, I'm quite broad with what I'm into. I've got my favourites. I've got, you know, your franchises, your Star Wars, your Batmans. You've got your favourite directors, your Nolans and stuff like that. But the way it's evolved has allowed me to just learn more about cinema, the history of cinema, mm-hmm. about directors. Then you, from stuff like that, you then learn about producers, writers, and it, it just really builds up the knowledge. And, and for me, it's just a great, not necessarily fun thing to do, not to sort of criticize what i do but it is it's just something that's become quite important and i think certainly for what i'm interested in uh you know when you when you run it i know you guys obviously you've got spy films but when you're getting to choose what you're doing it goes on when it's like hmm i've not seen all the spielberg films and i kind of want to and he's just had a great film come out and he's gonna have another film later this year so let's just go do a spielberg series for an entire year and that's kind of my approach these days to to stuff we want to do stuff that we end up doing so it's um, it, it's more, I guess, a way for me to take off watching films, but also talking about. And and let's be honest, I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for people coming on videos, getting to meet you both properly, uh, and a lot of other people, other channels, and it just really builds up that you can get some excitement based off what you're talking about and who you choose to bring on for those kinds of things. Hmm. And one of the things I actually really enjoy about Cinema Savvy is, you know, we mentioned up front, you know, you did your James Bond series. But whether it's as a viewer of your videos or as a guest on, you know, a number of episodes of your show, I, I really appreciate that you can tune in for TV coverage of, say, Mandalorian or latest shows on the air, Lord of the Rings. Um, but at the same time, 
you'll do a Spielberg series, and you and I did like an hour talking about the movie Always, a movie that no one was asking for an hour hearing about. It probably felt like Always for people listening to that one, but it was so much fun to record that, and I think we actually got a lot of good content out of that. We talked about The Terminal as well, and I've always really appreciated that. It's not just like the very easy-to-market geek culture stuff, whether it is Marvel or Star Wars. There's a lot of room for original dramas and basically the entire sphere of what film is doing right now. Well, I appreciate that. And just following up on always, so I don't normally follow stats, but I <laughs> I believe that our always review is one of the most viewed of the Spielberg series. No so if, way. For anyone that hasn't watched this incredible Steven Spielberg film that has everything you want to know about Spielberg, it's got an incredible cast and it will keep you really on the edge of, of excitement that you're watching that Spielberg film over any others he's done in his career. It's it's, it's one to really check out. But yeah, check it out because we made it last an hour, which I think is equally as impressive. Yeah, yeah. I think it may be a case for you where, like for Condor Man with us uh, and some of these more obscure spy films, you record them and you go, well, I don't know that anyone really cares that much about this movie, but people out there do. And when they search it or Google it, boom, you're up front. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. And I think that's kind of a good thing for us is that when we get to do these older films, stuff that, you know, when we're doing director retrospectives, maybe we did James Cameron at the start of the year, a director didn't know too much about aside from, you know, James Cameron's tough to work with. He, you know, he's drowned people, he's almost killed people, he's in this to people. But then you go back to Piranha 2 and, and it's a great way for me. And I guess kind of thanking you for bringing up those videos because I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of film. Now, it's called Cinema Savvy. We primarily do do film, but I like to dip into TV. As you said, Mandalorian, Star Wars stuff, things that I think people are interested in following weekly. I, I think I like those discussions. I like bringing people on. I've got a great people behind the scenes that, that work with this that are, that are really up for coming onto videos, which is always really like surprising in a nice way. Um, but I just think it adds that if we're, you know... Also, I you can't really run a channel called Cinema Savvy if you're not varying what you're doing. As much as I would love to talk about Star Wars every week, mm. which we've been able to do with The Mandalorian, still got to get reviews out for films because that's TV and you don't just want to do one thing. So you can get busy. It, and, and it's this summer is a very intense blockbuster um, summer, which is exciting at yeah. the same time because there's some unbelievable films I'm looking forward to. Five of them dropping in the space of like three weeks in July. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be one of those where I just, you know, if, if people are interested in film and other things, and this is, you don't have to like certain director. Obviously, you know, we turn around and say we're doing Ridley Scott and it's like 33 weeks, and yeah, you're sorry, you're not going to like 33 weeks worth of videos. But you might like some of his films or you might like just other films that are coming out. I think it's important to have a variation and, you know, as you spend more time on the web, as you spend more time podcasting, doing YouTube stuff, I really enjoy finding the niches of other channels. And then you get the responsibility of, I guess, bringing like representation as well. A lot of people have been able to meet a lot of Star Wars Celebration recently, actually, who had podcasts live at the event, which were incredible. Uh, and it's really interesting getting eyesights into why different people have different reactions to certain things. So it's it's a constant evolution. In a very weird way of saying that, it's it, to me it's more than film now. There's a sort of select responsibility, and we're very lucky to get press stuff. Scott, I know we obviously got to the Grey Man together last year, uh, and said nothing for Ghosted, <laughs> but that helps if if people are trusting you to put videos out. 
mm. to to the audience, then then thank you for letting us do that, and we hope we, you know, give it a, a fair viewing. But also, you know, we've got to tell people should you actually go watch this film. And I think that's 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 kind of we don't do stars, we don't do ratings. So that's kind of my mindset these days. Is it ends with do we recommend it? But to what point of recommending a film are you doing? Mm. Well, people's time is is precious. And if if you can streamline their day by saying, "Hey, probably don't go see Ghosted because they ghosted everyone," then <laughs> I mean, I, I I'm I'm not biased at all, by the way, folks. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's no bias here whatsoever. And you know, I I completely agree about having a, a broad range of things to cover. I mean, I I know Cam and I would get very bored very quickly if we were just hitting the hits every week. If it was literally bouncing from like. Mission Impossible to James Bond every week, back and forth. I think I think we'd be done by now already. It's been yeah. two and a half years. I think I would be... It's almost three years at this point, actually, when this comes out. I think I would be looking at my watch about now. I think that's what's great, though, because when, when we first discovered what you were doing, I think around the time you guys did Central Intelligence, I was like, wait, somebody else has seen that spy film with, like, The Rock and came out? I was like... <laughs> uh, and it, it wasn't this, like, moment of points of, like, oh, they actually do do spy films, but it's the it's the variation of the spy genre. And as a credit to being allowed on the show to do this with you, I'm not just saying it because I'm on, but you're covering films from different decades, different reputations, different legacies, and you've got to get that variety. And you guys have absolutely smashed it, which is what I've found so interesting is some of the films that I'd never heard of Condom until I first met you both. I've still not seen it, fortunately. Your life is richer. Well, your life is still richer. You should yeah. still watch it. I, I know of it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's an important thing. If you know, As I said, I like to learn more about films and certainly through spy films, I've learned a lot more through here, uh, which is which is great. And it's, it's a great platform for people that are into that genre because like what I said at the beginning, you know, one day I discovered that it wasn't just James Bond films. And, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of people might still think that. I'm not judging anyone's ages, but some people think a spy film think you can only have James Bond films, which... It's fair. Maybe that's the general audience perception. Maybe that's you know what brings box office. But it's one of them that there's so much more to it in genres, and uh, I think that's that's very important. I agree, and I think tying us up there, you mentioned your always review and how no one ever asked for an hour on always. Well, uh, I wonder if anyone ever asked for an hour on this week's film, Cam. <laughs> We're here this week to talk about 2011's The Mechanic which is, of course, the remake of the 1972 Charles Bronson film. This one, however, stars Jason Statham. Who is basically a modern-age Charles Bronson. I mean, honestly, like I remember when they announced the casting of this movie, and I, at the time, was not particularly familiar with the mechanic. But just hearing it was a Charles Bronson film, I was like, yeah, that is perfect casting. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'd not made that connection until having seen the first one and now sort of cross-referencing but i can definitely see the connective tissue but before we get into connective tissue here is your letterbox.com synopsis the mechanic someone has to fix the problems arthur bishop is a mechanic an elite assassin with a strict code and a unique talent for cleanly eliminating targets it's a job that requires he loses that. T- he loses I was going to say quickly. cleanly, <laughs> cleanly uh, question mark <laughs> for the first ten minutes of this film, maybe. Yes, it's a job that requires professional perfection and total detachment. And Bishop is the best in the business. But when he is ordered to take out his mentor and close friend Harry, Bishop 
is anything but detached. Dun dun dun. Uh, yeah. Uh, perfectly fine. Uh, synopsis. I have no connective tissue to this film. I don't even think I've seen the transporter, let alone the mechanic. So I'm uh, oh. very far detached from the world of Statham. Uh, I've got some choice words about the man, uh, but we'll get there. Well, hold on now. I'm just curious. Like, what Statham movies have you seen? Does anything jump out? There are some. I mean, I've seen like the the Fast films, right? Yeah, and the Hobbs and Shaw spin-off. Uh, the Guy Ritchie films. Yes, the Guy Ritchie films. Uh-huh. But not a lot of his like sort of um, B-action movies. No, there might be a couple. Um, I mean, I don't think he was in that film with Jerry Seinfeld. but Jerry Seinfeld? Uh, <laughs> That's a movie I would watch. <laughs> the B-movie, right? Oh, good one. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I don't, there's probably a couple that I've like seen bits of and been like, they've all just just formed into one blob. That is entirely understandable. Yes, yeah. uh, that 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 might be a problem. But uh, George, I'm curious your connection to sort of the mechanic. Now you said you'd never really heard of it, but like Jason Statham, had you had much of a connection to him? Yeah, I mean, I I can't say I'm a massive Jason Statham fan in the sense of you know he's not like an Adam Driver to me. Where any time the film's on a title, I'm going to go watch it, no matter how bad it could be. Looking at you, sixty five. Um, but Jason Statham is a fascinating one where. You know, again, like that sort of teenager age, you know, the late noughties, I had this um, this neighbour who was still there and every Thursday night, and I learned so much about cinema by just, I hate the term like lads, but every Thursday night we'd go around and I was like 12, like 13, 14, it was throughout secondary school. They were in their like late 30s, early 40s and they were sort mm. of inviting me in because they knew I was really into film. So they were all watching these like action films that they, they were, you know, not grown up with but hadn't seen for years and every Thursday they'd show me a new film. I saw wonders like Heat for the first time with these um, true lies. So many amazing films across my teen years. And there was a lot of Jason Statham ones. Um, And they do sort of blend into one. And when Scott first spoke about doing this, I sort of picked the phone up and I was like, I'd forgotten the name of the transporter. And I was like, ah, I've not seen this for ages. It's going to be quality. And then obviously you know you get home. He's like, okay, no, it's you go and just watch to find out where you're going to be able to watch it. And I was like, ah, oh, no, okay, it's not that. So, I I knew nothing about the mechanic. The, the thing with Jason Statham is, if there are Jason Statham films you haven't seen, you can just assume how they're going to go, and they tend to go that way. But I really like him on screen. I don't know why. And ironically, I've struggled with him in the Fast and Furious films. Yeah, I'm someone that gives them like free passes for an eternity. I actually don't mm. like him in the fast films. I think he's great in his tough British guy stuff. And it was it only got funnier as I got older when I discovered that he was like a he'd been at the Commonwealth Games as a diver and everything, which I didn't know anything about mm. his pre acting career. I'd always thought of him, you know, that tough guy. So it is really interesting with him, but I've got a lot of his films, you know, uh, the crank films were amazing. When I, again, you've got to be the right age to, I think, watch a lot of his films. I think if you're. I think me today watching at least the first time, I'd really struggle and I'd be too scared to go back to them. And obviously, the Expendables were were quite not big growing up, but again, you know, with that Thursday night action vibe, the Expendables films were were on there. And in a really scary, he was like the young guy of the Expendables films, which kind of made it scarier. Yeah, that's a good point. For me, like I, I am like 
a big fan of the idea of Jason Statham. <laughs> Like, I I love the idea of Jason Statham. You You're know? great in theory. <laughs> great in theory. You know, I, I really enjoyed him a lot in those Guy Ritchie films. And yeah. I, like, liked specific things he's done. You know, I think the first Crank is actually a really fun, inventive movie. Not as big on the second one. But, like, I went and saw, or at least rented, I think every single theatrical Jason Statham movie. And there was, like, some I enjoyed, some I didn't. But I always was, like, kind of rooting for him because he has a quality that I think is really impressive and I think is really undervalued, which is someone who can, like Charles Bronson, kind of play a movie star action hero who you understand the persona and it's about how you apply it to different things. And I think his is so well honed, he just has never really had that vehicle that put him up to that next tier you know what i mean he's never had his like stallone or um schwarzenegger like vehicle where suddenly it was like boom he's finally arrived he's always kind of dwelled in kind of these b movies while occasionally being part of an ensemble in something bigger like the italian job or the fast movies um i guess he was the star of meg that was a reasonably big budget thing and made some money but i've always felt like he deserved better and the mechanic I definitely saw this movie in theaters, definitely opening weekend. I had almost no memory of it whatsoever when we, uh, <laughs> we're going to be revisiting it for the show. I don't think I liked it very much judging, you know, I gave it a very kind of mediocre grade in my kind of archives. And I was praying that I'd written a review for it at that point in time. Oh, please tell me you have. I hadn't. But oh. what I did was I found my review of his movie Parker Boy, there's one the world has completely forgotten, which was a movie he did with Jennifer Lopez back in the day. And I mentioned the mechanic in my opening paragraph of my Parker review. Okay. So here's what I say, and it's more of a general Statham um, exploration here than a uh, Parker-specific introduction. We're all waiting. Jason Statham is such a charismatic force of nature presence that it's painful to see his considerable kick-ass talents pissed away on middling C-grade junk. Seemingly born a couple decades too late, he's a natural movie star who could have shared the action god throne with the big three, Arnie, Sly, and Bruce, in the gloriously pumped-up 80s and 90s. Imagine him occupying his own crazy Total Recall, Rambo, or Die Hard picture, as opposed to Killer Elite, Transporter, or The Mechanic. Ah, what might have been. So what you're saying is you didn't enjoy Parker. I hated Parker. (laughs) I think I said that Parker was the worst Jason Statham movie since War. Uh, And War is the one he did with Jet Li. And that was abysmal. And I hated Parker. But the mechanic was more to me just like middle of the road stuff. Okay. Well, at least you you actually saw out the three of us and have some sort of opinion coming into it, (laughs) which is good. Yes. Yes, I had an opinion, although an opinion that's mostly completely forgotten. Probably probably forgotten the week after I saw The Mechanic in 2011. And we'll definitely get to that, but I think we should uh, get our tools out, lads. I think that's fair. Let's uh, let's talk about how <laughs> we got the remake of The Mechanic, because I'm fascinated with the concept of them going back and remaking something from the 70s that is not a big film. Isn't that kind of perfect, though? Take a concept that works. You should be doing that. There's no way we should be doing this. Like, let's remake, you know, Back to the Future. Get out of here. Remake Condor Man. Yeah. 
Or those like um, live action Disney remakes where they basically take Ugh. a perfect movie, like say Beauty and the Beast, and are like, let's make a live action version that we can only screw up. Yeah, I, I do not understand this need to remake uh, masterpieces. Baffles me entirely. But Cam, I'm sure you have a, a story to tell. Yeah, so the original producers of the 72 mechanic, um, Erwin Winkler and Robert Chardoff, were shopping around a remake of this movie for 15 years. This was something that was developed multiple times. A lot of writers were attached to it. There were versions that were very faithful, and then there were versions that were like wildly askew. Basically took probably just like kind of the central nugget of the idea and went off in wild directions. But they could never get this thing made. It was actually about a mechanic. <laughs> that was the movie. It was just a guy toiling over a car for 90 minutes, and they were like, hmm, we may have gone too far afield here. <laughs> Up, Uptown girls started playing, and they're like, we're really hitting this on the head here, aren't we, guys? We need to change this up a little bit. <laughs> so in 2009, it was announced that Simon West would be directing a remake of The Mechanic. And Simon West, I know and love him for the movie Con Air, but he'd broken through with a lot of music videos. He was a British-born director and uh, famously directed the video for Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. That is now like one of the most no. iconic, yeah, one of the most iconic no. memes of all time. This is now the best movie ever. Uh huh. Um, this show, this show is ending in a Rick roll. Everyone, just get ready for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Even if I have to sing it, we're getting it. We're getting Rick Astley. Yeah. So Simon West directed Con Air. So I fell in love with this guy. I was like, oh my god. I'd really loved Michael Bay's work with The Rock in 96. Con Air rolls out the next year, and I'm like, Simon West is our next big action director following Michael Bay. That was not the case. He proceeded to do some <laughs> things like uh, The General's Daughter with John Travolta. He was, um, I suppose, responsible for Laura Croft Tomb Raider, a movie that had a lot of behind-the-scenes issues. Um, and that one kind of like finished his big-budget action directing career. From that point forward, he went and did TV a lot. He did the horror remake When a Stranger Calls, which was horrifically bad. Um, and he did The Mechanic and really just kind of followed it up with, he did Expendables 2, which was kind of like pulling him back into kind of a bigger movie. But since then, it's been just a lot of direct-to-video action movies, including the Jason Statham film Wild Card. World-renowned. I've never seen it. <laughs> never seen we it. All have, we all have wild card here. It's wild hearts, of course. Yeah. And in that initial announcement, they said that writer Carl Gajduzic would be writing this movie. And at the time, he was really only known for a couple episodes of the TV show Dead Like Me. Hmm. He does not have a credit on this movie whatsoever. Since then, he's actually gone on and done some notable things. He uh, wrote the um, Oblivion, the Tom Cruise film. Hmm. He worked on the November Man, the Pierce Brosnan spy film, as and also the Kingsman, the most recent entry in the Kingsman franchise. George winced at that one. <laughs> I got excited then, and then I realized which one it is: the Kingsman. It's yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure what happened with Carl there, but. He did not wind up being the screenwriter to bring this one to life. So what happened was, and I think this is really interesting. They took the original screenplay for the 1972 film, which was written by Louis John Carlino, and they basically sent that to Jason Statham and were like, would you like to be in this movie? Right. 
Did they did they like describe Charles Bronson's really ornate house and everything in that script too, with like the leather furnishings and everything and the mahogany everywhere? It would have been the exact same script that Charles Bronson would have read. Are they allowed to do that? Surely that's breaking yeah. some sort of rule. No, no, they have the rights to the to the screenplay. Okay, sure. All right. What did Jason Statham say? He loved the screenplay. <laughs> sure. He was like, "Oh my god!" I think the thing with Jason Statham is, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of Statham talk through this episode, but like. When he does movies like The Bank Job, I feel like that's where his heart is. Doing these kind of like gritty, almost like 70s influenced things. So my guess is when he got a screenplay from the 1972 film, which is very like minimalist in its dialogue, a lot mm -hmm. of like kind of grit, uh, a lot of like kind of kind of moody tone stuff going on. Mm -hmm. I can see why he would be interested in doing this. And so he was like, I'm in. Sign me up for this movie. Okay. And... um. I have a quote from Jason Statham. Um, it's very short. From the press tour, yes. He said, this was on the press tour for the movie. It had a press tour. There was a press tour, of course, yes. So he said when he signed on, he goes, there were no rewrites or anything. Then I went away, did a film, came back, and it was completely different. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yes. That's leading into one of my notes, actually. That's very interesting. Okay. So the... Other screenplay credit goes to Richard Wenk because they actually gave, if you look at the movie, original writer Louis John Carlino has story and screenplay credit. And it's mm. because they used a lot of his screenplay. But Richard Wenk is an American writer, director, and he started off in the late 70s. He did a short called Dracula Takes the Big Apple and then rolled into writing, directing a 1986 horror comedy called Vamp. And since then went on and directed a couple things, Nothing really of note after Vamp, but mostly is known as a writer of action movies. So he wrote 16 Blocks. Uh, he moved into this movie and then would go on and do the Equalizer films, um, the, the Magnificent Seven remake, uh, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, the Martin Campbell film, The Protégé. And he's attached. He's one of the uh, there's a few writers on the upcoming Marvel adaptation um, Craven the Hunter that Aaron Taylor Johnson will be starring in. Oh, so boy. he's really like a writer of kind of meat and potatoes action movies. And he apparently uh, wrote this uh, screenplay rewrite in eight weeks. I have to, I, just before we like reflect on that, I do have to say when you were saying, and he also wrote this film. Yeah. I, in my head, the way you said it, it sounded like this film was called, a film was called this film. Oh. And so I was like, Wait, like, you know, like scary movie, like just really stupid titles. So I did quickly IMDb this film and uh, it replied, you're an idiot. So I realized my problem. There we go. Yes, yes. So yeah, he wrote this draft of The Mechanic in eight weeks. Okay. So it was this rewrite basically that changed it completely. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Any insight as to why it was changed? Uh, I don't know. Like Scott, we reviewed the original Mechanic. Do you think that sells in a 2011 marketplace? No, but I'm not sure this one does either. No, that's fair. That's fair. But I think they just probably realized they had Jason Statham, and they're like, we want to market a Jason Statham film. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. I was going to say, so I've not seen the original, uh, and I actually didn't know it was a 70s film until after I watched this one. How wildly different are the scripts? I mean, obviously, obviously it's modernized. It's a different decade in another century, but... Does it feel that wild, the changes to what Statham would have read, I guess, before his break? The last act is very different. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the character motivations are the same. A lot of the character origins are the same. A lot of it's there. A lot of it's there. 
Yeah. Has, yeah. But it's like the 70s version is more gritty and downbeat. I mean, yeah, contemplative and sort of, yeah, it, like it, it, it sort of brings like an assassin, so it takes the idea of being an assassin to task and sort of questions what it is to be an assassin, what kind of person it takes to do that. Whereas this is very much like the Hollywood version of that story. Yeah, it's kind of the difference between, because I'd say both of them are kind of like B-action movies, mm. but one is a 1970s B-action movie and all that that entails, and one is a 2011 B-action movie and all of the kind of the trappings that come with that. Sure, yeah. And so Ben Foster said when he signed on for this film, he had very low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's taking punts at this film. Great. <laughs> he was basically like, I think what drew him in was just the idea of doing kind of an action movie. But when he read the screenplay, I don't think... Ben Foster is like one of our really, really strong actors out there. And I, I don't think he read this and was like, oh, this is going to be a home run. I think he probably was like, oh, this could be fun to do. If it clicks, awesome. Sure. I, I appreciate his honesty, at least. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also honest, Donald, uh, Donald Sutherland who weirdly was all over the press tour for this movie, giving interviews all over the place. And at a certain point, one of the people interviewing him asked, how many days did you work on this movie? And he goes, two or three. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I, again, appreciate his honesty. Fine. He is a trooper. This man was out there giving interviews for this movie all over the place. Well, look, you say, oh, you can have an interview today with with Donald Sutherland or Ben Foster. The press people are going to be like, Donald Sutherland, please. Give me two scoops of that because it's Donald Sutherland. So yeah, I, I get them. I get them sort of saying, "Yeah, your contract is to do press. We're putting you out there, Donald." Yeah, we we would make that choice because we would be like, "Oh my God, we can ask about Eye of the Needle and the Eagle yeah. has landed." There would be so yeah. much to talk about. Yeah. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, yeah, we love you, Ben, but uh, yeah, Donald has the spy cred. Um, so this movie had a budget of forty million dollars. Domestically, it did twenty nine point one international 47 for a worldwide total of 76.1 that's a that's a I, I, it's not a flop but it's not a home run this was always the case for the jason statham like led action movies was mm. i could never figure out why he kept getting them because they didn't really do very good box office like he must have just been doing very very well in home video rentals which would have mattered more in 2011 isn't that also the same with liam neeson well, the Takens made a lot of money. No, the Takens did, but he did all those other ones, like all like the uh, Liam Neeson on a plane, Liam Neeson <laughs> on a train, and well, I think with Liam Neeson, it was actually diminishing returns because Unknown and Nonstop made actually a lot of money, and it's more like once you get to the later era ones, like The Commuter, which you mentioned, or Memory, then the box office starts to dip more and more and more. I thought Diminishing Returns was a Liam Neeson film for a second. <laughs> it probably will be at some point. <laughs> Going straight to streaming on Sky Now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good old Sky Now. I think the last one did. Yeah, there was a couple that went straight to streaming. There was Blacklight, I think, and Frozen Road, I think. I think with Liam Neeson, you just remember Liam Neeson and, and whatever it is he's fighting. It's like uh, Liam Neeson and, and the, the Lion one, right? And it was interesting with Neeson because it seemed to be like, as the Taken films got worse, that's as, as his career was tailing down more and more and more, and... And then he came back to Star Wars. It's like, yeah, there's too much Star Wars, but you know, I just came back still. Um, but he's he's a fascinating one with with his films and he makes a lot. He makes a lot of them. I give him that for someone that you know could have been James Bond. He's, he ended up doing a lot of 
those kinds of films that just weren't obviously James Bond films. Well, I, I watched, um, speaking of your Spielberg series on Cinema Savvy, I watched Schindler's List for the first time mm. the yeah. other week. Uh, not a fun watch by any stretch, but an important watch if you want to sort of talk about cinema. I think it's a film everyone should try to watch. And I was blown away by Liam Neeson's acting abilities, which is not something I'd really ever seen stretched before because my only experiences with him were these random action films, the Taken films, and Darkman. That's basically all I'd ever seen. Or Batman, yeah. Oh, and Batman, of course, as well, which, is, again, is like cartoony, yeah. kind of like Darkman, really. So, yeah, he's, he has the chops, but he, he isn't using them anymore. He was very good in the movie Widows a couple of years yes. ago. That was a very good film. Um, but he does, you're right. He doesn't do that as much. I think he just likes to do kind of like lighter fare now. Um, maybe just the place he was in, in life. Like, you know, obviously you had the untimely passing of his wife and it seemed Mm -hmm. at that point he really plugged himself into doing a lot of these action movies. And maybe it was just like, he liked to do things that were lighter tone, doing physical action and just kind of occupy himself that way. Sure. Yeah. Can't blame him. No, it makes sense. And especially if the audience is very receptive to it. Yeah, so. which is, again, sort of the Statham model. People maybe not, are not turning up in droves for the mechanic, but they do kind of associate Jason Statham with this style of film. They will... I, I imagine this, if this came out on streaming, this would be quite popular. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Maybe the Mechanic 3 will go straight to streaming. Who knows? Netflix, if it's a Netflix original, it'll be Netflix homepage number one, and then Netflix will say, guess what, guys? We broke our own records, and we still won't tell you what those record <laughs> numbers are. But it broke <laughs> So this movie landed number 90 for the year between the George Clooney film The Ides of March and The Change-Up. Was that a uh, Jason Bateman movie, I think? Oh, I think it might have been now you've said it. It was one of those like body swap ones, I think, wasn't it? A bit like a Freaky Friday type. Was Ryan Reynolds in it with him? What's it Mate, called? I-, I feel like I can remember the poster. Yeah, The Change-Up. Or Jennifer Aniston maybe being in it too? It was like, I, I remember being critically reviled. The change-up is Jason Bateman, Ryan Reynolds, and Olivia Wilde. Olivia oh. Wilde, okay. Okay, well, there you have it, folks. Mm. Um, about as forgotten as the mechanic remake, I suppose, <laughs> in the scheme of things. Um, the top three for the year. Number one was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Number two was Transformers Dark of the Moon. And number three was Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides franchises 3d yeah a lot of 3d 3d dollars all over there big time those were the days of the plastic glasses where everyone had to throw them in the bins at the end yeah i've still got my uh harry potter ones you know these are like limited edition (laughs) ones for certain films yeah i've got they did the harry potter ones over in the uk and uh everyone was trying to get them so i've still got them and uh, they did star wars i do not remember those i think i think it became a thing where they were just doing them for a lot of 3d films and 3d was really kicking in and actually i remember watching the deathly hallows and i was like hold on these are smaller than normal 3d glasses so actually it made it harder to watch the film uh and uh, that was a <laughs> that was a very important lesson learned that day i would imagine too that that movie would not look particularly good in 3d no i mean it's already a dark film in terms of coloring before 3d and it's even darker with 3d and yeah it, I feel nostalgic for these films now, isn't it? Where like you go back ten years, it's like, oh yeah, the three D boom, and just every film got the three D word added on, and 
they're trying it again now. I saw Marvel Guardians of the Galaxy only in 3D on release day at like IMAXs. I'm like, people aren't going to go. They, it's not going to happen again. We watched Avatar 2, but we're not going to be doing every film in 3D. <laughs> but all right, we're here. The second version of this story both started from the same script, it turns out, which I, I find entirely fascinating. But uh, George, this is your first time with Arthur Bishop, with the mechanic. What did you think of the mechanic? Oof. The character, Arthur Bishop, I I was equally surprised when he said his name was Arthur. I was like, Jason Statham calling himself Arthur? I wasn't I wasn't feeling it. And uh, if I'm being honest, that's kind of how it went on. Now, I like Jason Statham action. I actually really enjoy the opening scene. I'm just going to... Because I, mm-hmm. I knew nothing, right? When I sat down to watch it, it was on Amazon Prime for streaming. One hour, 33 minutes. Love, love, Lovely. love that runtime. Um, mm. And I was like, okay, you know, it's a Statham, it's a B-list, it's an action, let's do it. And I just didn't really feel much, if I'm being honest. I, I don't think it's Jason Statham's fault, actually, uh, if, if I'm being completely honest with my issues with the film. I quite liked Jason Statham in it. Uh, I think the, the pairing with Ben Foster's actually where I completely um, fall off this. Um, but... Mm. Arthur himself, it's fine. It's Jason Statham, isn't it? Like you, you know what you're gonna get. It's like you go to watch a Jason Statham, like you know, don't expect Wacky Phoenix. You're not obviously gonna get that, and and the source material for this is certainly not that. So, it's one of those kind of things where you just gotta go along with it. And it's an hour and a half. You know, the timing at least went by fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> not like some other recent ninety minute films. Looking at you again, sixty five. Um, but yeah, hmm. you really have been out for sixty-five. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why it keeps coming. You know, there's been some terrible rumors about Adam Driver being in a certain climate franchise this week, and I'm just there like, do you really need to do that after? Do you really need to do that after doing sixty-five? You've got a good career ahead of you. Um, but I think because there's been, I did a back-to-back without sidestepping again of Super Mario Brothers and Renfield this week. Yeah, and I was absolutely buzzing that they were both an hour and a half. We right. had Cocaine Bear. Mm hour and a half, yep, and 65. And it's like, you're the kind of one that's failed us. That It's the perfect mm. runtime that's sort of making a comeback. And listen, we know we're going to get our three-hour John Wicks, our three-hour avatars, stuff like that, balance out with the 90-minute ones, which we're sort of getting. Um, but yeah, just, just, just a sidestep, that's probably why I'm still fuming about that film. That's fair. Well, like this, the new Scorsese one, they're saying it's going to be four hours long or something, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, and there's the new Joaquin Phoenix. Um, Bo is afraid. I think it's three hours. And something else, some a big movie. Oppenheimer. Oh, um, um, oh, Oppenheimer's three hours. Yeah. Like if you can, if you can have a good enough story to support three hours, and all the power to you. I think Avatar, it actually earns the three-hour mark. I think it actually is quite well paced, and you don't really look at the clock in Avatar too. But I'm glad they stuck to ninety minutes with the mechanic. I agree <laughs> with you there. Yeah, a triumph. <laughs> But do you not want a three-hour film? Uh, why not have them doing this for three hours straight? I, I could list many reasons why. Where would you like me to start? The greatest accomplishment of the mechanic was ending early. <laughs> <laughs> was leaving. Yeah, was leaving. Getting to the audience to the parking lot quicker. <laughs> Simon West's greatest directorial work was finishing yeah. up quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But So you, you were sort of unmoved by it, George, I'd say. Yeah, I mean... When the film finished, you know, the final act, I, I, mean, I can't really say I enjoyed it, but 
there was a point where it lost me in the sense of you know I'm, I'm not I'm struggling to watch this, but I'm going to finish this. But I'm not I'm not in good vibes of it. And, and then it sort of improved ever so slightly. And, and I went, I mean, because I knew nothing, like Donald Sutherland popped up. I was like, great, Donald Sutherland. Mm. I'm going to be interested to see what happens to him. Oh, um, okay, that trip's yeah. over. Uh, and I think my other issue was, and I, I don't normally like coming on saying, oh, that film was predictable. It's an issue. The moment we were you know, we were introduced to the villain, who's obviously not the villain at this point, you can just tell within a minute of him getting the mission, mm. this guy is going to be the bad guy that set him up. And it's a cliche. It's, it's tried and tested. It can work. And sometimes in a film, I, I struggle when it's so... Not just blatant, but a boring blatant. Like, if you're going to be a blatant villain, give me something fun. Give me something over the top. Go for it. But it just felt so corporate, the uh, uh, like a blandness to it that I just, I, I, I think if I'm being honest, this sounds really strange, but I think Jason Statham maybe deserved better. Hesitated asking that. It's interesting because like Tony Goldwyn, who's like this kind of leader of the organization that turns on him. Like, Tony Goldwyn in the movie Plane, which is a total B-action movie that came out fairly recently. He's so much fun in that movie. And you don't really get that here. It feels very kind of by-the-numbers stuff. I mean, they're sticking to the plot of the first one. So there's a lot of things they have to do and have to stick to. But yeah, if you're going to be this generic mustache twirling villain, then, then play it to the back of the room. Go for broke and leave an impression on the film because he really is a sort of man in office there yeah yeah okay well that's that so george you're mostly mixed on it that's fine cam has you have your thoughts changed on arthur bishop with your second visit to you know the mechanic i'll say this much in terms of like some of the action it's reasonably well shot i think simon mm-hmm. west can actually deliver a shootout or a fist fight that at least has impact it may not be like a memorable action sequence that's going to stick with you it's not going to be like you know, the um, atomic blonde, like, stairway fight where it mm-hmm. sticks with you. But at least when you're watching it, you go, oh, that actually had some, like, punch to it. So in that regard, in giving me kind of, like, trash can action movie fodder, like, it was totally watchable. I think for me, like, this movie just nothing sticks. Mm. And when we watched the original, I don't think the original is a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. But it had a lot of interesting elements that, Scott, you and I spent a lot of time talking about. This kind of relationship between two sociopaths and how it goes wrong. But, like, they have this weird kind of, like, dance between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And the original writer talked about how in the early drafts, it was a two gay hitmen who had this kind of romantic as well as sort of this sociopathic connection to one another. Mm-hmm. And that was taken out because the studio in 72 was not going to shoot that. This movie strips out all those elements even more so there's like elements in the original film that you can kind of read into this movie we'll get into it later but it has a real case of the not gays going on and i found it sort of like by not diving into kind of the twisted nature of their relationship like they make jason Statham unconquerable as an action hero in this like yeah he is a professional there is no complications to this man. There is nothing to read into him. He is exactly what it says on the box. He is Jason Statham. So you kind of remove the kernel of interesting ideas that go on with the mechanic story. And so then you're just kind of left with a very generic action movie that has 
Ben Foster, an actor well above doing this type of movie, so there's sort of something interesting there, seeing just Ben Foster play around in this kind of movie, but other than that, it's really generic Jason Statham action stuff that's not bad, but it's certainly not good. I can't I can't disagree with you, and I, I think it, it's... Like, surface level, this film is entirely functional. Like, it, it gets you from A to B to C, and it gets you out in 90 minutes. Like, you go, yep, yeah, bravo, I'm going to go to have a wee before I go home. Like, it's uh, that's an easy cinema visit in that sense. But I think a lot of the depth of what is in the original is is very much lost in this film. Mm. It's it's a real shame. Because, like, the action is, is mostly fine. I mean, they must have had no money for the CG effects because those blood shots <laughs> are brutal. Yeah. Pay attention. To it. It's some cheap-ass-looking stuff. Also, the set that the villain is in looks like it's uh, basically like a, a warehouse that's just been put together with like a backdrop behind the window. But that's just me being critical. You know, there's there's signs of what could be interesting. I think the Ben Foster stuff of him going through the grief of losing his father, going out that night to try and pick a fight with a carjacker and like being violent. There's like a kernel of something interesting inside of that. But it's never fleshed out. It's never left to sort of develop. And by the time you get to the third act, it becomes a sort of generic revenge story, whereas the original had far more ambiguity to it, which I really liked sort of reveling in this. Everyone's a good guy. Everyone's a bad guy. We're all just men doing a job here. There's no emotion to it. And I really like that sort of angle, whereas here it's like they get turned on. They get revenge. And Jason Statham saves the saves day, whereas in the original, everyone dies. Yeah, and in the original... Like Ben Foster's character, the you know the sidekick character, wasn't getting revenge. No, it, it was that like he had his own motives for wanting to do, like just pursue his own. Well, he was given a mission to kill. Yeah, the mechanic. He was yeah. He was exactly. told his job was to kill him. So yeah, he was just doing a job. And also, um, the lead character had compromised his own standing within his industry by taking on the sidekick and bringing him on missions, which is why they were hunting him. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like by having your lead character make the decision to kind of uh, break his code, mm-hmm. that makes it way more interesting than kind of these external things like Tony Goldwyn wants to screw people over for money and all that and how it leads to Donald Sutherland being killed and then Jason Statham being attacked and all that. It's like, okay, like this is generic stuff versus character-driven stuff. Yeah, and that's that's a shame. And I will say the other thing that's like a detriment and like my overall thoughts is I don't think the filmmaker has any trust in his vision. Hmm. There's so many like montages in this film. Yeah. The one where um, Ben Foster angry dances is my favorite. Yeah. There's, oh my God. And there's like voiceover exposition from Jason Statham. Like it's, it's almost like, you know, use the force, Luke. It just all that sort of stuff is just in there. And there's like this rapid fire born style editing with no finesse whatsoever. I feel like I feel like maybe there was a two-hour film they made and then this got cut to pieces in the edit. Mm, possible. Or maybe they stretched it out. It it just feels like there's they're missing, not missing something, but it watching it, it felt like ah, oh, not necessarily this scene is going on, but this feels repetitive at certain moments throughout. And certainly, that I think the direction is quite questionable. Because as you mentioned, there's that great scene of Ben Foster and and the carjacker, but because it's so not just predictable it's just 
I'm very happy to watch a predictable film. Yeah. As long as it's interesting and it, you know, takes you on the journey, right? It's, it's like Bond, what we talked about earlier. You know, there's a Bond formula. You know how they're all going to go. But it's about the journey on the main. They just never felt like this. And really, I felt like we just didn't get to see much of Jason Statham, like, as Arthur. Not that I need some big build-up, but we got the cool opening sequence. And it was like, straight in. Here's his mentor. We've killed the mentor. Now you're with the son. Let's go. Carry on. And... I think that's where I sort of lean out of it, is that I don't think the... I'm not saying the director's incapable of telling the story, but it feels like if you had someone on board directing this with a bit of edge that could do tension, that could do drama, I I think there was room for this to be better. I say that hesitantly because the script isn't great, but it certainly felt like there's a couple of things that have gone wrong to make it the way it's come out as. Well, you know, this film makes a big deal out of, and the original did too, about have, being a mechanic, being an assassin, you have to have a particular set of skills, as the taken vernacular would have you believe. But basically where, you know, you have to be, you know, vicious, and you have to plan, and all these like elaborate boards and things like that they have to put together. There's a lot more made of that in the original. And you get that in the first scene. That first kill in the pool, I think, is actually really cool. You don't see it coming. He emerges and kills him underwater. I think that's a really interesting kind of interesting kill but from that point onwards they you know you get the opening exposition about uh you know we have to be have to be stealthy we have to be precise and we have to learn this is the sloppiest killings i've ever seen for an assassin they're like just strangling people stabbing people there's nothing there's no finesse to it uh not that i'm calling for finessed murders but like i just think like if you're selling it as that at least give us one more arthur bishop you know mission where it actually is quite air quotes cool and then he can start to fall apart i was gonna say i like the concept with it that we kill them to look as accidental uh, as it can be and i Mm. think that premise itself is interesting that that's something different that's something i haven't really seen before you know you'll watch the odd film out or the bumps someone off but it was an accident but the premise where this guy's job is to always make it accidental i liked that and I like to even, you know, later on when they've got the plan for, for the one towards the end, oh, no, he's on ketamine, it's not going to work now, we've got to change what we want to do. I like that it felt like there's something different to the approach to doing this. But as mm. you said, you get you get one, two of them done right, right at the beginning, and then the rest of them are just a train wreck. And it's sort of there, like, you could still do it properly in between. Like, you can still do that. And I think I said the cast are capable of doing it. As you mentioned the opening one, I love the whole Statham swimming underwater with him. I thought that like looked great as a visual. Yeah. It's something again I've not seen before. Yeah, and I think when you what if you're remaking your film, and I said there's going to be an audience that have it in the original. Like I guess myself qualifies for that. I don't know how the original did those kinds of things, or even if they had to make it like accidents in the original. Yeah, they did. But even if you bring it in the context of like 2011, it it never felt like it was. I don't need a film to be like you know exactly the way it should be, but it's modern day, but. Even the the visuals of it, it looked it looked like it was sort of early two thousands, trapped in the late nineties. That there was something really off about the whole film from the get go, and I can't quite put my hand on what it is, but certainly the way it was shot and the camera work, it just looks so. It's like a you know when you get like heavily like overgrained films as well. There's a lot of that, and I don't know. I think I think there was just something off about the whole thing for what it was trying to be, and if it is this slick modern day assassin bring bring the modern day into it it just felt so so 
bygone, I guess. A lot of yellow filters going on as yeah. well. <laughs> I got I got a Spectre vibe from that. Yeah. Mm. Well, I I think before we you know take this puppy apart anymore, let's, let's talk about things that we did like. Uh, George, you're up first. Give us something you liked about the film. Okay. Um, I spoke about the opening scene, which I think was a great introductory way to, to the action. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm struggling, um, but I am. <laughs> I did like uh, the concept of them invading a a cult that, uh, you know, well, it's a cult, isn't it? Towards the end. I like that idea that this is the kind of people they also want to bump off, but this person is, is of this wealth, is of this power, that they in turn can be against it. And there were certain moments where I felt tension when they're in the wall, mm. when, you, when you know the, the bolt rolls under. Unbelievable eyesight and, and ears from that one guy to clock that, by the way. Um, but that scene I enjoy because that felt like, here's the mission gone wrong. And kind of without criticizing the rest of it before, if if you'd have had them learning the perfect way to do it, and it was almost the first cock up or or the first big cock up with sin, then I think that functions. But because it got sloppy and deteriorated, you're expecting it to go wrong, and it did go wrong. So it's a scene I liked, uh, and I just thought the rest of the, the film didn't do what that scene could have been justice. Because yeah, this this kind of religious leader is a total creeper. They're going to basically inject him with something that's going to give him like a heart attack, basically. And he's on drugs, which completely throws the plan because what they want to inject him with won't work with ketamine, which is what he's on. And so like the way they pivot where they're like choking him with like the cable they were using to spy on him. I'm like, okay, well, that is like improvisation. It still looks like it could be an overdose or something like that. That's that makes sense. And it kind of lines up with where he was at the start of the movie. But then it's like, it just turns into like this massive machine gun fight where they're like rappelling off the top of the building. And I'm like, Mm. what, did they think no one was going to see them rappelling off the top of a building? And they're throwing the villain uh, villains off the like sides of the buildings that are splatting on the ground below. And I'm like, I think people would remember this. I don't think you're going to escape and they're going to go, hmm, clear overdose here. (laughs) There's literally like moments later, the two of them, the leads, are like both machine gunning the villain to like pieces they're <laughs> shooting into ribbons and it's like this is in broad daylight in the middle of the street the, the, these guys aren't undercover anymore they are very much exposed yeah when they're driving like a uh, dump truck and just like crashing through vehicles yeah. on the street although there is like not a single civilian anywhere in this city Mm-mm. no that costs money yeah uh, i don't know where this was shot but oh it was it was new orleans right sure yeah 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 um, they clearly just bought up like a couple of blocks or something. Where like people stay away, we can't afford extras. <laughs> yeah, we've only got money for Statham. Yeah, yeah, and Tony Goldwyn with his solid gold Porsche that he wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, okay, Cam, something you liked? I think what I like is kind of one of the problems with the movie, but it's Jason Statham. I think like when I talk about my dislikes, it's how casting Statham kind of prevents you from burrowing into that character in a way that I think it kind of requires. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's what makes this movie watchable for me. There is Statham's ability to sell the absurd that I think is invaluable. When you see like Charles Bronson's methods of killing people in the original, they're kind of like gritty and downbeat. Like they're kind of pumped up, but at the same time you buy into it. Whereas Mm -hmm. here they are really ridiculous. Like, 
the murdering of the Colombian like drug lord in the swimming pool. The way they play it, it's pretty cartoony, but like Statham sells the hell out of it. I think it's, you know, well well shot. Um, but then there was a moment after that where it's Jason Statham, you know, escaping from the compound and he's like standing on a bridge and then like diving off and doing a swan dive into the water to like grab onto a garbage scow or something. And I'm like, why? Why is he doing this? <laughs> but it's like Statham's ability to sell these moments where I'm like, I believe that this man needs to do this in this moment. Like Jason Statham is so good at grounding this type of absurdity. There was a moment too at one point in the film that made me laugh, but I also admired that they felt they could pull it off, which was like a moment, I think it was before he went and killed uh, Donald Sutherland's character, mm -hmm. where, you know, it's a friend of his. And we just have Jason Statham sta uh, standing on his patio, looking off into the distance for a prolonged period of time. And then he walks away. <laughs> and I'm like, he sold that. It's not like multi-dimensional acting going on here, but just by watching Jason Statham stare off his porch, I'm like, he's conflicted. <laughs> multi-dimensional acting. I want to see what that looks like. That's a, that's a new style of acting right there. There's method and then there's multi-dimensional. <laughs> yeah, so like to me, Jason Statham brings such an authority to these types of action movies that I'm down for it. When We had that really, really silly moment at the end where Ben Foster's character... Uh, you know, picks the perfect record that's going to set off the uh, house explosion and then blows up in the car. You see that video of like Jason Statham like rolling away from the exploding <laughs> truck that he was in, which is hilarious. But then you're like, I buy this. Like Jason Statham sold it to me. So in the sense of selling a Jason Statham vehicle, that man is invaluable. I, I can't fault that argument. I think he is easily the thing that keeps my interest throughout though i do have a bit of a soft spot for ben foster's character at the start which i'll get to in a minute but yeah this feels like exactly his kind of film him being jason statham and you know he makes you know wacky scenes like um when they assassinate the the arms dealer and they, they choke him to death and then hang him up and pretend that he died of autoerotic asphyxiation yeah and um, like he's uh, Jason Statham just pulling up porn on his laptop, super super quick. He knows that website address off by heart. <laughs> he pulls that up so fast. Uh, as waxing in front of the guy, that wasn't a euphemism. I mean the laptop, and uh, and it's it's it, and he plays it straight. You know, like it's absolutely fine. Stuff like that's gold, and I like watching that. I, I just miss kind of like, I find myself missing the depth of Charles Bronson, which is not a sentence many people have ever uttered. Sure. Well, there's the scene where Statham is like threatening that family to get information and he's holding the like teenage daughter's hand over the garburetor. And I'm like, this is a different movie. Like mm -hmm. this is closer to what the Charles Bronson film kind of was. Like it had a yeah. much meaner edge and Statham sells that moment. I would have like totally watched a kind of darker, meaner take on this material with Jason Statham and Ben Foster, who's totally up for that sort of thing. Um, it's just that that scene feels like it's from a different movie. And then they kind of pull their punch where they're like, ah, ha, ha, ha. he was tricking them all along. It was a stake. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 yeah that's a shame. Um, I think in terms of likes that I had that we hadn't mentioned, I like the Ben Foster character at the start. I like I, I like that they've slightly changed the origin of the protege in this film, mm. and he's far angrier than than just a sadist like he was in the first film. Like the going out and you know getting drunk and sort of destroying his life 
is quite interesting until he becomes just very adept all of a sudden. Yeah. And becomes a hitman out of nowhere. Whereas before that, he had no sort of skills. Um, but like, yeah, like seeing him go and fight that guy and like get drunk and mess up that uh, mission that he was given to take out the other mechanic and going back to the guy's place and like almost having sex and things like that. Quite interesting. And seeing the sort of destruction of a person and, and dealing with grief, it could have been a lot more to it, but there really wasn't enough time to deal with that. And so I don't know why they bothered to, to even try to deal with it because it just left it unresolved. Yeah. Like this movie's not interested in plumbing the depths of its characters. So no. kind of like why bother setting that stuff up? Yeah. And and so that, uh, you know, that, that annoys me a little bit, but I appreciate the attempt. I will also say I liked seeing Donald Sutherland's role. I, I wouldn't say beefed up, but I think because you've got Donald Sutherland in the role instead of that guy that laughs really weird from the first one. <laughs> Uh, you, you care a little bit more, and it's actually quite a gentle <laughs> killing, I guess. Yeah, I'm laughing about Keenan Wynn being referenced there, the guy who laughed really weird. Uh, yeah, Donald Sutherland is invaluable in this movie. Like, no one wants to see this version of Donald Sutherland get shot. You know, nah. he's such a nice guy. It's not the Donald Sutherland from The Hunger Games who are like, "Won't <laughs> someone please take this guy out?" It's just like he's so lovable and warm that yeah. He does. He said he was only there two or three days, but the man did his work. He left an impact on the film. The way he got the wheelchair down the stairs as well. Mm. His his arm day would have been intense to have got that part done, which was, and you know, again, someone that hadn't seen the original, I had no idea that was coming. You cast on suddenly, you think you're getting him in for the long run, or he'll pop up at the start, come back at the end, and and, and be a surprise twist. But I didn't expect him gone so quick, uh, and I did kind of review Scott. I don't mind the Ben Foster angle. I just they they just don't deliver upon what they could have been there, especially when you've got that great moment with the with the carjacker and by the time he gets to the ending it, it feels almost comical the way he goes out, the mm-hmm. way it all goes out. No idea if that's meant to be intentional, meant to be that overly predictable, but it just comes across as one of those roles where it's like, watch me get edgier as the film gets longer and that's where I'm sort of zoning out with him. That's I was actually gonna ask that question later on, but I think it it's queued up nicely here. Now, we've seen the original and the the sort of twist ending where the protege character gets blown to smithereens is in that film too. So it, it's something that has carried through. What did you think of that sort of twist ending? I I thought it was both predictable, right? That, ah, oh, he's going to go to get him because, you know, he's at the end of the day, he still killed his dad, didn't he? You know, it doesn't matter what yep. friendship they've done from there. And it's Jason Statham, and he's not going to die in this film. So it's going to be like, okay, how's he going to get out of this? And the CCTV of the the commando role in the petrol station that's still basically <laughs> still blown up, you know, as he's... T- that, like, he must have been like a droidica because he does that gamble. It's like, yeah, he's still got to, like, get way far away, but I'll let it go because it's Jason Statham. But I... It's just kind of what I expected, which I guess isn't bad. It's not... I mean, I, I don't want it to be great. I... I'd have been curious if they had killed him off, but then I think I'd have felt even less. You know, I, th- I think because I didn't like Ben Foster's character, I quite like the fact that Statham did survive. Um, Arthur, mm. I guess I should say. But it, it's just one of those where it's, I don't know, it felt quite flat. And, it, and I think that's kind of what's got me curious that I would want to watch the original to a point because as soon as I realised there was an original, this film never felt like it had the, not the legs to, to be its own thing, but it felt like it was borrowing from somewhere else and 
seeing that it was something from the 70s, that explains it immediately. Like you can tell from the vibe, the setting, the story ideas, this would work so much better in like an early 70s film narrative. So I would be half curious to check it out. And it is interesting that that is the twist that, you know, let's keep them alive. And then there was a sequel a bit five years later. Well, that's that's actually not the only twist in the original. There is another twist, but that isn't carried over in this one. But I won't spoil that for you, I think, if you're going to watch it. Okay. I'm curious. Uh, I'll leave that. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spy Hard's HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hard's Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Want to have some fun in the sun in style? Well, you know what? Now's the perfect time to catch up on our June offerings. That's right, our reviews of 12 Angry Men and Meteor, as well as our latest episode of The Debrief, where we're talking about Secret Invasion, Mission Impossible, and so much more. Let those good times roll. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Yeah, well, all right then. Dislikes. It seems like we have a few. George? Um, Scripts, which, I mean, I guess the cast all clocked as well. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't... I love I, that, by the way. I love that they're on the press tour, like, yeah, pile of shite, but, uh, <laughs> but we're here to get our paycheck, so, uh, yeah, what do you want to know? And I think in, like, 2011 as well, you didn't get really press tours like that, right? You know, nowadays with, you know, I mean, there is social media in 2011, but it isn't like it is now on press tours where... Every word is captured and out there, and anything that can get a story becomes a story. It must have been something to have got them to say all of that, but I don't normally like bashing on films, but my dislikes just seem to be... Um, I would say direction. I, I, think, I think a lot of issues, I think, come from the direction. I think you've got the wrong... The action comes across okay, but I think you've really... This film shouldn't be an action film. Mm. This could have been a a thriller. Mm. And I think if you had the right director on board for that, you'd have delivered with both the action and the the story. Whereas I think the story is neglected and the action itself, it's as you said can it's shot okay, but it's it's nothing new to talk to what's been done in the past. And I get you're not gonna get something new with, with you know like B list films as well, but it just felt like, you know, what they picked for that they're, they're missing out on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, with the direction, it it's a weird one because I don't know enough about the chap to really levy any complaints against most of what he's done because I like like Con Air and stuff like the the good films, even Tomb Raider. I we had that on the Patreon. I quite enjoyed it. It wasn't a home run, but it was fun. Yeah. Um. So I I don't have any ill will against the guy, but I don't think I don't think either either one or two things. He didn't have the power to do what he wanted. Or he didn't understand what worked about the original. That's my take on that. Yeah, I think it may have been this need to serve the stay them audience. Mm. I think that was a big part of it. And I think that also explains why some significant changes were made to the material 
to make it a little more um, friendly to that uh, that particular action crowd. Yeah, especially if they had the idea of uh, having sequels in mind as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what about you, Cam? Something you didn't like? Well, maybe I'll dive off of that. The complexity of the movie is just gone. Yeah, it's gone. All gone. And you know, you look at the original. It's that sociopathic connection between these two. But you also really underscore that the Charles Bronson character is incredibly lonely, mm-hmm. and like this, this life of being a hitman has just kind of like drained humanity from him yeah and you remember he has the arrangement with like the escort in that where he goes to visit her and it's basically like she puts on this play about like being this woman in love with him who's written him letters and all that sort of thing remember that's our outro true yeah yeah and then you look at what goes on here yeah where it's like this like very pumped up like porn movie like parody okay so i had i had a note about this i was gonna bring up at the end but i have to do it now how weird was that? How much of a smash cut was that? They're just talking, and then smash cut to full-on frontal sex scene. To uh, uh, in the background of the sex scene with Jason Statham and this random actress is a song called "Doing It." <laughs> <laughs> I just like, I okay, I get it. You're trying to drive home a point, but come on, be a little more subtle than doing it. But it's like the original scene was to show just how lonely and broken this man was. I don't. This is just all about building up the like machismo and like heterosexual glory of Jason Statham. Like that's all that scene is there for. It means nothing. And when I mentioned the not gays mm. in this movie, you have that whole sequence where there's the um, mechanic that uh, Ben Foster goes to kill and. This mechanic is a gay man. Ben Foster is flirting with him, you know, goes out on a date with him, goes back to his place. And there's sort of like the preamble of like a love scene. And then it turns into like a big bite and everything. Mm -hmm. And Ben Foster kills him. And that is followed like really, really quickly by like Ben Foster at a bar meeting this woman who is like, a again, like a porn movie character who walks up and is like, why won't someone hurt me like that? When she sees Ben Foster's face, cut to like aggressive sex scene in a back alley. And it's like, no, 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 folks, don't trust us. Don't worry. Ben Foster's character is straight. It's like, guys, like, it's okay. <laughs> like, you can take a little more of a complex or at least a more interesting angle on the character. Ambiguity is the word I used earlier. It's completely missing from this film. Yes. There is no gray area. Everything is very black and white. And that's just. A real shame for a film that's dealing with an entire business that happens in the gray area, and that's being a hitman. And it's like the sexuality stuff is incredibly one note because they're just focused on building up these two stars as these heterosexual, you know, dudes. Mm. And then it's like, so the women characters are not treated well at all. They aren't treated well in the original either, to be fair. But at least, like, their scenes are a little more complex and there's something to actually, like, take from those scenes yeah. versus there's nothing in this movie. And then I just want to also note, there's the carjacker scene with Ben Foster. Um, there's, like, an intensity and an uncomfortable nature to that scene that I think works in selling Ben Foster as a character who's very much on the edge mm. and not of sane mind. But it's a little uncomfortable that that is, I think, the only person of color in the entire movie and it's the carjacker who's going to uh, take his car and then gets the absolute shit kicked out of him. That is a yeah. very valid point that I hadn't picked up on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's ugly. And this is meant to be modern day, not 
you know, the 70s. Yeah, this is 2011. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I still couldn't quite get over doing it. And also, I couldn't quite get over uh, <laughs> the whole lady, like, I wish someone would hurt me like that. <laughs> Uh, that was weird that was crazy it's, it's the way he takes the sunglasses off as well like it's so yeah. over the top my my wife was in the room when i was watching it the second time round, and like <laughs> she heard that line like i wish someone would hurt me like that and she's like what the f are you watching i was like i don't know i don't know <laughs> i don't think they know like the first movie has that very dark scene where there's like the woman attempting suicide while they just sit and watch her yeah but it's to like underline that they are sociopaths. Mm-hmm. Like these are people stripped of humanity. This movie's not saying any of that. <laughs> no, it has no interest in talking about that whatsoever. It's a real shame they have to like go to the not gays in the in the twenty tens. Yeah, yeah. Like if you explored that, you could make actually like a really interesting newer version. Like take the original writer's intent of what he wanted to do with this story and deliver on it. But no, they pull in the opposite direction. No, could you imagine that that this was actually like, uh, okay, a LGBT story running underneath this? Well, that's the thing. It's like, I think that's why I said my pro was Statham, but it's also kind of my negative because I think once they attached him, that was never going to be the case. Yeah, I, I don't think I could ever see him doing a film like that. Ben Foster would probably do it though. It, I think Ben Foster would have signed on for that movie, and I think another actor would have played the lead in that movie. Sure. Uh, I mean, I've got a couple of little little things to pick on. Uh, I mean, I said about the horrible digital effects from the blood, especially that sort of big chase at the end when they after the assassination of the cult leader, like all those headshots and stuff with the blood splatter. It just looked rough. Yeah, really, there was no money there whatsoever. But that's uh, I can forgive a, a B movie looking like a B movie. That's not the biggest problem in the world. Uh, my bigger problem was that it just became a revenge store at the end. Mm, yeah. Like it, it had like it, in the original, you had you know, the Ben Foster project character getting a mission to kill the mechanic. So they were playing off each other and each other, they knew that each other had those missions. It was like they were fighting each other without fighting each other. They were on a mission together, but having to work together and also try and kill each other at the same time interesting dynamics at play whereas here it's very much just like oh these are the bad guys time to kill them it's 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 nowhere near as rich as it could have been and yet they worked from the original script which is what baffles me now i've learned that yeah i i don't get it and it's not like the original was high pedigree like it was a michael winner film the man made like a lot of b action movies it's just that that one had some interesting level you know layers underneath it yeah to dig into and it's just like this one is stripped of that sort of thing like it is you would sum it up is a very like down the middle of the road efficient 80 minute action movie like someone who's tuning into this on a you know late you know midnight on a saturday night or something isn't gonna be that disappointed they're gonna get a 80 minutes of fast-paced kind of generic stay them action and go yeah that's why i watch some of his movies but it doesn't give you anything more no, it it isn't a rich text in any sense of the word. It is I'm I'm so glad it is like 80 90 minutes. Yeah. Cuz I don't think I could face the two and a half hour version of this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. It's the full doing it song. <laughs> <laughs> Extended cut. <laughs> yeah. That sex scene was crazy though. The way they shot that to him like wow, this is um 
<laughs> fairly uh <laughs> it was such a whiplash as well between like they're just like talking and you had that really awkward scene before where she's like hey come and dance with me and he's like not saying a single word she's like no come on dance and they just hold the camera on her as she's like no come on look stupid dance <laughs> uh yeah that that was a weird choice but um okay well as we're wrapping up we'll sort of go to final questions and and sort of remarks that we had i did have a question for everyone kind of set it up at the beginning we were talking about hollywood remaking classic films when they really should be remaking mediocre films because they could necessarily potentially improve on them the question is and i want to hear from everyone online listening let us know on social media what do you think What's a film you would like to see remade now that you know didn't get the love it should have got? wasn't quite delivered at what you, it should have been. Didn't quite live up to its own potential. Uh, George, what do you think? Okay, people might hate me for this, um, and it's from the nineties. Um, mm-hmm. I saw it for the first time a month ago, and I, I'm going to say on record this has a great reception. People love it, and I really enjoyed this. But I'm going to say the Hunt for Red October. Um, yeah see and and my approach to this is we just had the All Quiet in the Western Front German version right German production German, I guess yeah. we can't really have Russians at the moment but where I'm kind of going with this is I would be so curious to see I don't want to say an authentic take because that sounds like I'm trying to slag off the original which I'm not but I think if there was the right cast the right filmmaker and, and the right approach, Hunt for Red October could be really interesting as a remake. Um, I think a lot mm. of people would disagree, and I understand their logic to disagreeing immediately. But I just think there's something there. There's there's really something there that I would be very interested in seeing made with today's technology, crews, productions, and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely your belief. I, I quite love the original, but we haven't tackled it on the show yet. So I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe it doesn't hold up. I don't know. Oh, I loved it too. But yeah. I just thought it, it would be one that I'd be curious to see someone else give that a go. Because you look at, you know, uh, what's the, there was the one from a couple of years ago. Star is Born, right? You've had a, mm-hmm. you've had a remake, yeah. but it's been in, done in a different way. And it's, it's had as successful a legacy, I guess. Um, but it's one of them where sometimes I don't mind a remake. If, if, another version, another adaptation can work. So that's kind of my approach for Hunt for Red October. It's a very tough question because I'm just mm. desperately not trying to give a childish, I didn't like this big film that I was excited for because uh, it's too easy if I gave one of those. Right. So you're saying the uh, the Hunt for Red October is in the shallows. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a bad one. Okay, uh, Cam, can you save me there? So I wrote an article a number of years ago about kind of like middle of the road forgotten movies that should be remade because they had an interesting premise. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I know I put Howard the Duck on there because like the Howard the Duck comics had a lot of personality and the original movie's like a disaster, mm-hmm. but it's also not representative of what people loved about those comics. But nowadays you're going to see Howard the Duck animated shows coming up like Marvel's taken over the world you're gonna get that so i'm not gonna make that my pick there was a movie from 1983 i saw many years ago um i think i taped it off tv called of unknown origin and it's about an investment banker who is 
at home working on a big assignment. His wife and kids are out of town. And suddenly a giant rat appears. And it turns into this kind of like man versus nature of this guy at war with this creature that is slowly demolishing his house. And how he starts to demolish his own house to try to pursue the rat. But it's also kind of this like metaphor for like struggling with the kind of the process of his job. Mm. And it was a sort of movie that was like kind of mediocre. But like the concept was so out there and interesting and weird that I've never forgotten that movie. I think you could do something really cool with the rat. I think if you get the right actor, you get like a really great kind of spotlight actor showcase about someone sort of slowly unraveling. And uh, I think you could do something cool with it. And again, you remake it, no one knows about that original. I I can't fault the na- I can't fault the idea. I I think uh, you're answering the assignment perfectly well. I just can't like retort to that because I've never seen the original. <laughs> it is reminding me of another film though. I can't remember any of the cast, but like he, it, the protagonist keeps seeing like a giant spider in his house. Okay, and it's, it's to do with like his crippling anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that was in the last sort of fifteen years that came out. I can't remember what it is, but I, maybe that is like somewhere from that film has made into this film. Oh, you're thinking of the movie, um, the Villeneuve movie, Enemy, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yes. There it is. That was a good movie. Yeah, it's like where the the it's like the horror movie concept where that which is haunting you is about whatever's inside of you as well mm. right like and it's the spider there it's the rat in of unknown origin it's just that like of unknown origin kind of drops the ball a little more sure. and you could do a better version of that i i mean people who have seen that film let us know what you think of it and if it should be remade i i went down the spy route i couldn't pick between two 80s spy films that i had a lot of love for but like couldn't quite stick the landing and kind of got lost in themselves both ones that we've tackled on the show uh cam do you do you care to take a guess at any of them condor man no no i think condor man's perfect <laughs> uh uh gotcha that's one of the two yeah okay yeah uh i think i mean to to, to explain gotcha if you haven't seen uh, seen the film or heard the episode anthony edwards basically is an american student who comes to europe as like a it just you know he's finished college he wants to go away for a few months and gets wrapped up in this cold war story falls for a femme fatale you know west berlin agent gets taken to east berlin it's quite harrowing getting out of there but like this is like wacky bookends on either end where he's like a massive misogynist it's very weird and very 80s but there's a fun story in the side of it that i think could really be sort of nailed down and speaking of cold war stories the one that like really jumped out to me is timothy hutton and sean penn in 1985's the falcon and the snowman based on a real life story again a fascinating story about what happened to these two kids that got pulled into the cold war yeah and i think the film does a tr- does an okay job of getting the story across but it feels quite low budget it feels quite like almost like an indie film in its own way like it, it's kind of offbeat it, it isn't really feel very mainstream and i think with some sort of Hollywood gloss on it and some sort of star names behind it, it could get kind of like the Bridge of Spies treatment and really have an interesting story to tell. Yeah, you could even do that as like a limited series. Yeah, too, that could be. Really I think that could be great yeah. as like a six-part BBC series or something like that, like Night Manager. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If anyone else has a suggestion online, let us know. But I'll throw it out to everyone else: thoughts, notes, anything else 
on the mechanic remake what do you guys have george you have anything else you'd like to say about the film i don't actually um I, I don't think i'll be watching the sequel but i would like to watch the original which i guess is a credit to story potential right the, there was something in there that i gravitated yeah. towards and i want to try and unlock that well you have to let us know by the time we record the next one hopefully you've watched it and you can let us know what your thoughts are on the original we'll uh, see if we can include that in there uh cam any sort of notes i had a couple things um the bit where ben foster is forced to adopt the chihuahua and look after it for a period of time Mm -hmm. i was mixing this up with another movie i've seen this concept before and the whole idea was then he had to shoot the puppy do you remember what that was does that jump out to you guys oh no that does for a film um Kingsman, the first Kingsman film. Yes, that's what I kept thinking of. I was like, oh, that's right. He's going to make him look after the puppy for an extended period of time. And then Ben Foster is going to have to possibly, you know, point a gun at the puppy. And then it didn't happen. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what movie was I thinking of? So it's Kingsman. That's right. Yes. Good call, George. Thank you. Now, I've only seen the first Kingsman, The Secret Service. Is that what it's from? Or is it from The King's Man? It is that one. Oh, I've just forgotten it. So I, I saw that in theaters, and I think it's the only time I've ever seen it. Yeah, so that jumped out at me. I'm glad that we were able to provide an answer to that one. Um, the other thing I noted was actually a uh, cameo that may be of interest to some people. Not a cameo at the time, but uh, do you remember the scene where they have choked to death the religious leader, and they're hiding behind like the mirror? Mm -hmm. And the hired goon goes up, and is like peeking through the mirror and they shoot him through it's the head. Chad Stahelski. That, that was Chad Stahelski, the director of the John Wick series. No way. You know, I, I thought it yeah. was him and I didn't search it up, but I thought, is that, is that, cause he's, he's done screen roles, of course. You know, he'd done stunts. He was kind of his double and he popped up in the Matrix Resurrect. Was that the, what was the fourth one called? The Matrix Resurrections. Resurrections. He was in that, literally playing someone called Chad as well. Um, Oh, thank yeah. God. I'm glad someone else noticed that. Uh, because I thought, oh, great, this movie's yeah. going to get a great moment. And, uh, no, he didn't. he didn't, at least, I guess. No. Well, at least he gets like shot in the face in kind of like a hero, like blood splatter way, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's cool. Didn't know that. Uh, I had one other note. Uh, Cam, you kind of mentioned this tool, and we're speaking of that scene with the cult leader. Uh, endoscopes are no laughing matter. Mm, I don't want to find out. No, uh, no one wants those cameras. They are not fun, and uh, that film proves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brutal, brutal. But you know, victory loves preparation, lads. I think are we all prepared to talk about the knock list. I think we've got to the right point in the show now. George, this is your first vote on the knock list. <laughs> first of many, I hope. Uh, I, I, you know, this might be. An easy question might be a really difficult question for you, but uh, is the mechanic remake making the knock list for you? Unfortunately, not. Unfortunately. Well, well, I, I mean it politely. There might be some fans out there that really like this film, uh, and if they are, make themselves loud, <laughs> proud, and show the world because I'm just being nice for their sake. Uh, not in a million years if I'm giving my actual hard truth. Fair enough. I mean, it, it's a no, but you know, the, we all found things that we liked about the film. We had to dig deeper than usual sometimes, but uh, that's fine. Cam, what about you? All still to play for? Uh, this would not even make the Jason Statham <laughs> knock list. So, no, it is not making the uh, spy movie. And that's something we didn't really talk about. Like, 
I don't know that this one has enough spy cred because that's one thing with Hitman movies is sometimes they really bring in a lot of espionage elements. Mm -hmm. There's enough here, I think, to kind of justify it in the conversation. But in terms of putting on a spy list, no. And it's nowhere near good enough to make any sort of best of list. Well, put a pin in that something you just said then. I want to come back to that in a second. But like speaking on the spy front, you're right. We really didn't tackle it. But that whole scene that we were praising with the assassination at the start feels like the beginning of a Connery film. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the suit and then like changes costumes and dives off, all that sort of stuff feels like an early Bond film. So I think there are a lot of elements to this that could work. But you mentioned the Jason Statham knock list. What's making that list? Um, Furious 7 is making it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bank Job would probably make it. Sure. Um, Lockstock and Snatch would both make it on. Yeah. I'd put Expendables 2. You think 2? I might say 1. Ah, uh, see, for me, the second one's the the the, the prime. That's what the Expendables should have been. Um, that's fair. Crack, I'd say the first Crank film I absolutely loved, purely for his pronunciation of Chev Chelios, um, is is wonderful. I think an argument could be made for the first Transporter. It's not one of my favorites, but I think you could make that argument. Yeah, I'm with you on Very that. Very action heavy. Very I, I think at such an early part of his career as well, it's that sort of limelight of yeah. that's what starts to get him a few more. I, I, I'd say if it broke the American market, I don't know the numbers actually, but I, I reckon that's probably one of the first big films where outside of the UK they start seeing his stuff. I've not seen his version of The Italian Job though. I'm very curious about watching that one day. He's really fun in that and Spy would actually make a Jason Statham knock list as well. Because like, he's actually very good at comedy and doesn't do it enough. And you know, it's important to mention that he's got a couple of other spy movies we'll check out. You know, he just brought out Operation Fortune, which apparently is out worldwide, mm-hmm. which we've spoken about on several occasions, but not actually reviewed just yet. And we will at some point, don't worry. So we will tackle that film too. Maybe that will make the Jason Statham knock list. Who knows? Possibly. Possibly. But in terms of our knock list, we've had two no's, so my vote means nothing. It's still going to be a no for me. I think they could have done a lot with this you've got jason statham that's probably going to put some butts in seats and uh, they just kind of played it safe this is just a very safe version of this script whereas this could have turned so many different directions that we just proposed in this episode a different ending none of the revenge stuff you get rid of that maybe you make it like about two sort of star-crossed lovers that are assassins which is kind of how it was meant to be originally lots to tackle but they didn't. They really just did a sort of paint-by-numbers action flick with Jason Statham, which absolutely appeals to certain people. And all the power to you, if that's all you need. I wish you the best. But I needed a little bit more sauce with my dinner. Uh, this didn't provide it for me. Yeah, it's a real slow pitch right down the middle. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, yeah can be fine, but not this time. But there you go, folks. Three no's. The mechanic is not making the knock list, and as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Mr. George Aldridge, Hello. thank you for coming onto the show for the second time, but the first in an official knock list voting capacity, hmm. if such a capacity <laughs> exists. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I um, hope you've had a nice time. For people who want to hear more from you, there'll be links in the show notes below. Of course, you can just click down there and head on right over to Cinema Savvy. But where can people find you online and uh, what have you got coming up for Cinema Savvy? Of course. Well, firstly, thank you for, for inviting me on. 
even though the film wasn't great, I still like talking about Jason Statham as we just got a little mini Jason Statham knock this there. Um, mm. At the time it's coming out, we're going to be doing some spy films. We did Bond a couple of years ago, which we spoke about. There's a certain Tom Cruise film coming out this July, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, and we're going to be doing all the Mission Impossible films. So that's going to be occupying us from the end of May through till mid-July. And we've got a lot of stuff happening. It's a very busy time of year. It's summer blockbuster season. So we'll have reviews out for a lot of the releases. We'll have secondary like spoiler discussions on the big ones. Maybe we want to have those discussions. And we'll be gearing up for, for a, a big second half of the year. So if you're into films, you're into TV, you like those sort of discussions where people are going to go heavy on certain films, we do that. But if you just want someone for 10, 10 15 minutes giving their thoughts, recommendation, we also have that sort of vibe. So we hope you've got stuff that you look forward to. We hope you cover the films you'd like to see. Um uh, and you'll catch these two on here. As I said, we've had you both on British Spies, we've had you on a few Bond ones. We've had you we've had you on a variety, which is always lovely. So it's nice to be on here. But uh yeah, at Cinema underscore Savvy is the Twitter and Instagram handle, youtube.com slash cinema savvy. And if you're curious about myself, not that I tweet any interesting things these days, it's at Aldridge96 underscore AFC. Um, will Twitter be a thing by the time this episode comes out? None of us know. Uh, <laughs> it's had some big, big changes. But uh, that being said, yeah, if, if you've enjoyed this, then thank you. And uh, thank you both for, for letting me on to talk about this film. Oh, our pleasure. No, and uh, I'm looking forward to your Mission Impossible coverage. I might have to see if we can uh, infiltrate one or two of those discussions and uh, finally oh, yes. get our thoughts on Mission Impossible out there, perhaps, because we've never once spoken about the Mission Impossible series famously. And I know, I know, I know one of you is a very big fan of the second film. Mm, we'll leave that there. It's a mystery. It's <laughs> yeah. a mystery to be unboxed down the road. But, uh, yeah, George, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. But, Cam, I guess the question goes to you, sir. What have we got coming up next week? Scott, it's been a long time getting from there to here, but we are going to wrap up the Daniel Craig Bond saga with 2021's No Time to Die. How did we get here so quickly? It feels like it's flown by, uh, much like the years of my life, and I'm slowly, rapidly growing old by the second, much like Daniel Craig is before our very eyes. I know, and we recorded a declassified episode of this a couple years ago. Mm. Can you believe it's been two years since we recorded that? Yeah, that's actually very scary. And also, this will be interesting because it's the first time we've ever done a declassified and then the full review. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that works. But uh, yeah, first of all, I want to tip my hat to an Enterprise reference there, the Red Alert Star Trek reference there. Well done. That one was a little buried. I was like, whoever gets it, gets it. Whoever doesn't, doesn't matter. Well, 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 well. Grab your bionic eyes, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle. 2021's No Time to Die. If you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. And do not forget to follow us discreetly, as always, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if you're listening to this, then you're dead. Boom. Boom. <laughs>